All right, we are started for today. So we are going to pick up right where we left off at the end of last time. Um, so if by any chance, I don't think I see the names in uh, the listeners that are listed there at the bottom, who I remember from the caller queue at the end of last time. But um, if, you know, if you are there uh, and you were waiting to uh, to talk at the end of last time, please do call in right now, and I will take you right away. But otherwise, I guess I yeah, that's right, Crunchy. I remember was the name of one of the callers uh, who was uh, who's waiting last time um, with that name. Might have wanted to take issue with my statements about degrowth, uh, but in any case, um, Crunchy or other caller whose name I do not recall. Uh, who are in the queue at the end of last time, uh, whenever you get here, please do just uh, hop into the queue and I'll take you. All right. Um, with, uh, with that said, I want to go back to some of the distinctions we were talking about last time. So remember, uh, one of the things uh, that, uh, one of the things that we said last time is that, you know, one way to think about Marx's theory of history, and we might go back and look at the same quote we were looking at last time, is to say that uh, Marx has two kinds of theories, which sort of combined together to form uh, his overall theory of historical materialism. One is a theory of the stages of history, and another is his theory of the transitions between those stages. So uh, the theory of the stages of history said, you know, is just consists of Marx's analysis of primitive communism, Marx's analysis of slavery and feudalism, those pre-capitalist class societies, uh, Marx's analysis of capitalism and Marx's, uh, you know, analysis of what he thinks socialism will be. Uh, and then the history, the theory of historical transitions has to do with how you go from one to the other. And in the original form that, you know, this, this preface to um, uh, the, uh, the 1859 uh, preface that we were talking about last time, uh, he, he says that once the forces of production have developed to a certain point, uh, then uh, the relations of production, uh, which, you know, that's what the theory of the stages of history will tell you about how the relations work, the relations between uh, lords and peasants, capitalists and proletarians, all that stuff, uh, become a fetter to the further development of the forces, and then that gives rise to a social revolution. Okay, so that's the rough picture, and I am going to bring in Gareth before we go any further. So, Gareth. What's in your mind? And just as a reminder, you do have to unmute yourself. You're unmuted, but I don't hear any sound. Can you hear me now, Ben? Yes. Yes, I can. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, no worries. I was just, um, this question comes out of uh, yesterday. And yeah. you, in the 1859 preface and in, in Cohen's work, he, he's, he seems to be defending this base superstructure idea that uh, politics and 
law as uh, legal and political relations is like this superstructure on this um, relations of production. And, um, you know, one of the criticisms that has always been made about that is that they're that that even making that kind of distinction between politics and law versus, you know, the relations of production is itself something that's, you know, dependent on capitalism. You have to have uh, a capitalist uh, uh, mode of production because then you have a separate economy that's based on private property that's defended mm. by the state, but it's separate from that. And, and mm -hmm. legal relations, there's lawyers and judges and all of that kind of system is, is as, as opposed to just, you know, sort of, dispute resolution within the community that's based on, you know, the, the norms of the community, which is what, you know, sort of relations of production is. And even, even in capitalism, you know, what is private property or the, the rules of employment law or whatever. So mm -hmm. uh, what, what, what do you say to that point of, or in what does Cohen say to that point that you can't really distinguish these two things? So then how, how can you say which one is, um, which one determines the other? Yeah, so what Cohen says to that point in Karl Marx's Theory of History is that, um, well, okay, so there's some stuff that I would say to the first part of it, but just, I guess, go into what Cohen says in there. Uh, there's going to be an important distinction between uh, legal ownership and effective control. We were talking about uh, a little bit, um, a little bit last time. So, you know, it's, it's not that, you know, it's not that capitalist employment relations just are, you know, employment law, uh, that you have facts on the ground that might or might not um, match up with what the law says is supposed to exist. So, um, you know, it, it could be, you know, think about all that stuff in capital about, um you know, labor laws that are passed, but that they're never enforced because uh, there are like three factory inspectors to go around and look at, you know, 10,000 coal mines or whatever. Uh, so, uh, which, so that's, uh, so that gets you at least a distinction between those two things that the, that, um, that the legal and political structure and the, um, and the, this, the set of class relations aren't the same thing that, uh, that they're at least distinct things. So that, that at least makes it possible to make sense of one of them being a superstructure that's built on the other structure rather than one of them just being like a subset of, of the other one. And so like the example we talked about last time was about, uh, the collapse of, I think we talked about this last time was about the collapse of the guild system, uh, as capitalism is rising that, uh, you know, the sort of official, you know, guild laws um, don't uh, say, you know, say that uh, that you're, you know, you can't have a certain number, you know, more than a certain number of apprentices uh, working within uh, the workshop under a given guild master. So you'd like a factory would be impossible. Uh, but um, and, and also, of course, uh feudal laws say that you can't have like part of those norms, which are, you're right. They're not enforced by something that's separate from the, um, from, you know, that's like separate from the relation between lords and peasants, because like maybe part of the Lord's uh, role under feudalism is to, is to adjudicate disputes 
among the peasants and all that stuff, but the set of norms uh, that are, you know, constitute feudalism include that you uh, you can't, um, you know, peasants are bound to a certain estate and they can't like leave to go look for for jobs in a factory in the city, and um, and that's uh, and and so says well in both in both of those examples. Uh, like a big part of the process of how the legal, you know, legal and political superstructure was changed was that there was sort of the facts on the ground involved like mass flouting of the, uh, of uh, the, uh, the sort of official legal rules. And this is like part of what eventually then the, the official legal rules, you know, caught up to that. So that would be, so that's like an important part of how, All right. Um, so that's going to be an important part of how uh, of how Cohen would would respond to that. And I think you know, I think in general, um, you are going to have at least some disconnect between what's legally supposed to be the case and what's what's actually the case um, under under any system that like under um that uh you know there are you know there are slave systems where uh everybody who's in a certain group is supposed to be is supposed to be a slave and everybody who's in a certain group is supposed to be free but in practice you have you know you have exceptions to that and you have people who've you know who've run away and maybe even become slave masters themselves and, and, and so on, you know? So, so I think that's, I don't know if that's a completely satisfying answer, but I mean, at least that's, that's part of, you know, that's, that's part of an answer. That's the answer that Cohen gives in the book. Distinction is like, like for, I mean, I, I, I do, I work in law and like there's a distinction mm -hmm. between the law and the books and the, and the implicit law that people are actually operating under. And that, Exists mm -hmm. certainly in uh, you know advanced capital societies, for sure. Um, but is it is that is it only the explicit law? Is it only like the legislation and the explicit law that Cohen sees as being part of the superstructure, as opposed to like the uh, um, you know because private property is a is a legal relation, and, and the lawyers think about it in terms of what is the well, there know, is a legal law. relation of private property, but I. I guess the question is: Does that mean that that what private property is is a is a legal um, is a legal relation, right? So if if there's no such thing, you know, like if you have you've passed the Thirteenth Amendment, you don't have uh, legally you're not supposed to have slavery anymore, you know, but somebody just has has a bunch of people trapped in his basement working for him, you know, it's it's not really even a question of implicit law, I think, in the way that you're talking about. It's 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 just illegal. But as a as a matter of practice, those, you know, like the, the sort of relations of effective control, you know, those are his slaves, or maybe a more controversial example um would be thinking about um the sort of allegedly actually existing socialist systems and uh 
Eastern Europe during the Cold War that, you know, one, you know, analysis, um, like, okay, so there's this question about how you classify those, those systems and, um, and whether the, you know, whether the actual ownership relations there are sort of best, best understood by saying that, uh, that it's, it's actually the case that like, you know, the entire Soviet people or whatever really owned, uh, such and such factory, uh, that was, uh, that was, that was state, that was state owned, uh, you know, which was certainly what the, you know, the law said, like there's a, there's a passage I always remember in Trotsky's book, The Revolution Betrayed, where he talks about, um, he quotes this account from a Soviet newspaper of a, uh, little girl at a zoo saying, um, that they asking who owns the elephant and she's told the state owns it. And she says, Oh, that means that that means that I own some of it too. And, um, and, and Trotsky says, well, uh, she's probably the, the daughter of a high ranking bureaucrat. Uh, and, um, because if, you know, because she thinks about it, you know, that way, and, you know, maybe if, um, you know, and, and he's, he's got this kind of funny line about how if, if it was the elephant was actually divided among all of its possible owners, then, you know, then like, uh, then like maybe like her family would get the trunk or something, but, you know, everybody right. else would get some, you know, some insignificant part. And I mean, I know that that example might like muddy the waters unnecessarily because it's a little, un- you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of intuitively clear what Trotsky is trying to say with that example, but like, uh, what he would actually say about how to classify those ownership structures uh, might not really fit in with this, but like, um, but but I think that, um, but but I guess I guess I would just push on that, right? In other words, is it like, um, like is that distinction that you're talking about between the explicit law and some sort of legal notion of like the law everybody's following on the ground or something like that? Is that quite the same? D- distinction as sorry the uh, screen uh, anyway I'm not quite clear if you can hear me right just now but the is that quite the same distinction as the distinction between uh, legal ownership and an effective control and I'm not sure right and and so mm-hmm. like if you so that's one question then the other question is what goes into on this sort of analysis what goes into the legal and political superstructure well insofar as part of that are legal ownership relations then uh there's like what the law says which you know what you're saying is complicated in an interesting way but i mean like that's that's part of it and then there's all kinds of other stuff that would be that would be part of it that's uh Presumably, when we're not talking about the the social relations between classes, you know, when we're talking about this um, this broader, uh, when we're talking about it, like other things that are not part of the economic structure per se at all, right? We're we're talking about uh, the you know how the parliament works, or you know the uh, the mm-hmm. how the police work, or whatever. Uh, then that I guess those would be would be part of the superstructure. I mean, I, I guess last thought about this before I throw back to you is just that, um, like, 
in the original edition of Karl Marx's theory of history, Cohen is pretty gamely trying to defend all the stuff that Marx says in the 1859 preface. And so because he, so he does, that does include the stuff about the difference between the, um, the, the, uh, relations of production and the, the legal and political superstructure and that, that relationship working the way that Marx seems to be saying that it does in the preface and all that stuff. Although that's really not the biggest emphasis of the book, right? I mean, the sort of thing that he's like most interested in is like the relation between the forces and the relations and how to understand the relations and how to understand Marx's claim about how transitions between the stages work and all that stuff. But yeah, to the extent that he talks about uh, the difference between the base of the superstructure, as far as I can recall, that's what he says. Right. I mean, it's one of the criticisms of that book you know, that it that there's things that are specific to capitalism, and it, it may be a criticism that be fairly leveled at Marx's preface, but that there's things that are specific to capitalism that are taken as transhistoric. Like in the other one, big one is this technical development thesis that there's this constant development of, of forces production. And, arguable maybe that's just something that happens under capitalism at least in a you know in the sense that it certainly happens more in under capitalism yeah, I mean, than it uncontroversially it definitely yeah. happens more uh yeah. the the uh, yeah. i mean it does happen a little bit uh in pre-capitalist societies there's no doubt yeah. about that but like then yeah. like i think i think the more but is it is it is it like a historic force in the same way that it you know but and then and then this question like like yeah. Like one of the things about the Soviet Union is the, uh, even in Trotsky would say um, that in the Soviet Union, the political domination and economic uh, power are, are not different, really. Like in what he mm -hmm. wanted was a political revolution by the working class to take over the Soviet, you know, to establish Soviet democracy again, or at least that is the late, the late Trotsky. Oh, but, but, but isn't that, but doesn't that assume pretty much that same distinction? In other words, that the... Um, that that there is this there is this thing that's like the class relations of Soviet society, um, that's like underlying what the political forms are that you can, um, like like I, I I don't know I mean I'm, I'm thinking as I'm talking here but like that that conception that like oh the Soviet Union, um, that was a post capitalist society it just needed a political revolution to to disempower the bureaucracy. Like that seems to assume something very much like a distinction between the Soviet Union's political superstructure and its like underlying economic system. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, I, I don't want to monopolize, but he, it's like another way of looking at it would be more like in a Soviet type economy, you can't, you don't have the same distinction between politics and the and, and the economy that you do in a, a liberal capitalist economy. So it, it, it if whoever controls the state basically controls the means of production. Whereas, you know, in, in, a, it, 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 that relationship, at least in, in you know, in, in a capitalist society is, is more, certainly more mediated, more, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's a distinction between. Um, yeah. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly that much is certainly true. Um, and, and I should say to be totally fair here, I am more sympathetic to the second criticism that you mentioned 
about whether the sort of development of the forces of production over time is a, uh, like, whether that's a sort of constant force in the way that Cohen and, you know, I think Marx, right, uh, portrays it as being, uh, that, in other words, that it's like certainly neither of them are silly enough people to say that it happens equally quickly under every system, because clearly not, right? I mean, clearly it's much, much, much faster under um, uh, under capitalism than it was under feudalism. This is the, you know, I mean, 11 years before that 1859 preface, the Communist Manifesto, the first few pages are all about how, like, astonishingly fast and dizzying the development of the forces of production under capitalism is. Um, but there is, I think, at least a background assumption that they are um, they are developing over time. So, like, you know, I guess the obvious examples would be like within primitive communism, um, there is this huge like flying leap forward in the development of the forces of production with the agricultural revolution, uh, which, which then, um, and this is the, this gets into the sticky questions about how the transitions work, uh, either gives rise to, right. That'd be the sort of strong reading, uh, the one that Cohen is defending or a weaker reading, but I think, uh, a sort of easier one to defend is at least creates the possibility of, the uh, the rise of early class societies because you you now have enough to go around that you can support a class of non producers uh, and then and then even you know I mean look I mean between there's a lot of human history uh, in between in between the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution and during that time it's not as if it's not as if no do no there are no technological developments in the forces of production. I mean, it's happening at a snail's pace compared to how it's going to happen in the modern era under capitalism. But, um, you know, it, it does, I mean, you know, what's Marx's thing about the, the, uh, if you have the, was it the water wheel, right? You'll tend to have feudalism. And if you have the steam, whatever it is, you know, you'll, uh, you'll tend to, uh, to have capitalism, you know, I mean, the water wheel is itself like, I mean, that's not like it's something people had in, you know, ancient Babylon or whatever. So, um, so, I mean, I, I think this is something actually when I did the class at uh, Michael Albert's thing. <laughs> Sorry, not water wheel. Uh, Schnarf uh, reminds me it's the steam mill and the hand mill. That is, is what I'm thinking of. I don't know where I got water wheel. Uh, but yeah, they all, you know, given the hand mill, you'll tend to have feudal relations of production. Given the the steam mill, you'll tend to have uh, capitalist ones. Like, so this is something that when I was doing the the class on the, that Cohen book that we that we got into quite a bit and went back and forth on uh, whether that's whether this is a sort of a reasonable thing to say as a historical constant. There's always going to be at least some impetus, even if under some systems it's it's incredibly slow towards the the further development of the of the forces of production and the case for saying yes is saying well you know basically 
even if there are a lot of people who have an interest in suppressing some development, like if it's going to make things easier or whatever, this is, there's going to be, um, eventually somebody is going to, is going to start doing the thing that's going to make things easier. Uh, that though, you know, is like eventually somebody will have enough of an incentive to, uh, to do it. So, I mean, this could be a very weak claim. I don't know if that, like, I don't know if that very weak claim about development is enough to, to get you the sort of preface picture of how all this stuff works. Um, but on the, the criticism about the, whether it's, it's only true under capitalism, you have this distinction between the, the political and the economic. Uh, I think, I mean, like the easy way to, to push back against that is to say, well, look, I mean, it's clearly true in various like ancient slave societies that you've got a big distinction between those things that the, um, you know, the, you know, whatever, the consul who runs Rome is not the owner of every slave in Rome. Uh, but, but I think the more interesting way to push back against it is to say, well, how about if we just restrict our attentions to those systems in which the two are the most enmeshed, right? Like you already kind of said, under feudalism, um, part of the job of the feudal lord is to you know, raise troops and lead them in battle if, if need be. Uh, part of his job is to, is to sit or send a representative to sit to, uh, to, to hear out like disputes among peasants on his land. Uh, so, you know, there's, isn't like him holding those political roles kind of the same thing as, as him, um, as him having his economic role as the, uh, as the Lord of the estate and you know, not uh, not necessarily like you could say like yeah as as a matter of fact under this particular legal and political superstructure having one role is enough to be assigned the other but that's just sort of a fact about how those those rules are set up right in other words that's not like um, that's not baked into those relations of production it's it could still be the case that it's there's some important sense in which having those relations of production gives rise to that. And maybe, I mean, I'm not totally sure what I think about this, but maybe just to really push that line, you could start thinking about like, okay, how did feudalism arise in the first place? Like, how do you go from like the road, the like late Roman empire to, um, to, to having feudalism. And, you know, part of the answer is that you have these, these giant, rural estates in the, the late Roman empire that, um, that become, uh, that as the, uh, you know, just for this sort of gradual process of big landowners buying up more and more land, uh, that, that becomes like, sorry, I'm experimenting with, um, Colin just recently changed it. So instead of having to do this from my phone, I can do it from the computer. But that means that as I'm talking, every once in a while it'll fall asleep, and I have to, uh, I have to go back in. But uh, in any case, uh, that as the central government became less and less like you know capable of defending them, um, then they have, um, then they they could uh, then like they end up taking on more of these functions themselves. Um, so that would be like a historical priority claim that, you know, that like you sort of had 
some at least some version of the economic relationship in place and that it gave, you know historically gives rise to that relation but i i think maybe a more interesting way of, of pushing the point would be to say well you could have um look you could in principle have feudalism without it being the case that um that a feudal lord uh you know raised armies and sat in, dis sat in judgment over disputes and all of that stuff, right? In other words, you could have feudal economic relationships without it, um, you know, without it being the case that, um, you know, without it being the case that the, uh, that, um, that you had, uh, that you, that like, the people who were in certain economic roles were also then given these military and judicial roles. Um, but like, maybe there are good reasons why you wouldn't have that combination. Why, like if you, if you had economic feudalism plus uh, a more robustly separated out uh, legal and political sphere, why that wouldn't be a stable combination that maybe if, if you didn't have, feudal lords being these political roles, then sooner or later the political system would undo the feudalism, which if that's true, I mean, I, you know, it sounds like it could be true, uh, but if it's true, then that would maybe prop up the kind of point that, um, that, you know, the sort of analogy that Cohen likes, which I do think has some roots in Marx's own writings, which is the uh, analogy between um, these like priority claims and like Darwinian evolution. So like, you know, the, like the idea that like certain forces, you know, the certain level of development of the forces tends to select for a set of relations of production, or that I guess the relations of production would select for a certain legal or political um, superstructure. And then, you know, then the idea would be that the, um, that like feudalism maybe tends to, uh, you know, feudal relations of production tend to select for uh, this, this kind of aristocratic political structure, which, you know, sounds at least somewhat plausible to me. I mean, I certainly, certainly it's really hard to imagine feudalism um, coexisting for a long time with, um, uh, you know, coexisted for a long time with, uh, with, with like robust political democracy where, you know, peasants got the vote for kind of obvious reasons. Um, you know, that was a big deal in the French revolution is the sort of, uh, given the, uh, the, the third estate more votes. So they, they'd be proportional to the population. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I know this is all kind of scattered, but you do bring up a really interesting issue, and I think that's probably the best I can do on the fly. I do want to go to Jonathan, but first, um, I see that Silver says in uh, the chat, pretty sure Rome had a system very difficult to distinguish from feudalism. I actually don't think that's true. I think that's importantly not true, actually, uh, that the sort of, I mean, there's a sense in which it's maybe true that, like, you could say, look, maybe these ancient slave societies and feudalism have enough in common with each other that's different from, you know, that's like what they have in common is so importantly different from what came before either one, primitive communism, or what comes after both of them, capitalism. 
uh, that it's useful to just group them together and think about them as one big thing, like pre-capitalist class society. In fact, Cohen kind of does that a little bit at the end of the book. Um, but I also think there is a pretty straightforward sense in which you can distinguish what they had certainly in like the late Republic, early empire, uh, much less before that than from feudalism. I mean, that like, I think you can see a pretty direct line of transition there that like the early Roman Republic, uh, its wars were fought by, uh, by these like small farmer citizen soldiers who'd like leave their farms to go fight. Um, and then, you know, a big part of the transition to the empire is, has to do with the amassing of these giant land and estates, the latifundias, uh, by, you know, just sort of rich people buying up land that like, I think in a very, very slow way transition to looking like feudal estates, but I mean, first they're just kind of, you know, giant slave farms. So those do seem different to me. I will say that, but, uh, Really interesting call, Gareth. I will see you tomorrow in class. I want to go to Jonathan. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? So, um, this, you might not find this interesting, but I'll just try it out. Like, sure. Marx was sort of a Hegelian. You drew on mm -hmm. Hegel, and Hegel is this historicism, and there's mm. synonymous in my head in historicism horribly simplified is that the future proceeds from the past mm -hmm. it almost sounds you know stupid it's so obvious when you say it like that of course it does but what would you sure. say or cohen say or mark say any of any of the three of you what would you say to uh sort of a humean pushback that like uh mm -hmm. no it doesn't always proceed from the past like all all swans were white until someone found a black swan and like paradigm shifts are a real thing like, for example, where you were talking about the law, the law can change, but like the sort of foundational bedrock of the law, the substrate of the law, like what property is, the meaning of it, how the citizen relates to property is always the same. But what mm -hmm. if that can change? Like you can get places in history where that changes. Yeah. Like capitalism so, was one of those things. Uh-huh. Well, I want to make sure I'm understanding you, but I think like – the Hegelian historicist thing that goes into Marx is is certainly not that like you know things can't change in big important ways that the laws can't change the the economy can't change because clearly Marxism and even Hegelianism is all about saying yes it can here's our theory of how it happens but that um, the I think that the um, the claim here would be that the um, that like the the thing that would maybe be different from what you're describing is like the Humean pushback would be the claim that there's like the sort of I uh, I guess like the the seeds of the future are already there in the past that of course obviously there are these big shifts in economic or legal paradigms but like that that's um, that like the you know there is this idea in in Hegel and and then a lot of uh, later German idealist philosophers and then in a different materialist way in Marx that 
the the future or you know, the present or whatever is is already contained in the past, right? So it's not that it doesn't change, but it's that the sort of specific direction of change is already implicit in what's already happened. And, and that's the thing that you're saying, like that's the thing that you want to contrast with what you're calling the human pushback. Yeah. I, okay. So there's always going to be a way in which the Godhead can see how the present has unfolded from the past and you could look there and it's not useless to do so. But I, what if the understanding of the now, what if the larger part of the understanding of the now is is not gleaned from like examining closely the past, but examining closely the now for something that's never happened before in a, in a social relations that are unprecedented in relationship of the citizen to property that's unprecedented. And like, what if it's, what if it's new? What if it's something new that you can't find in history and you're looking for it and it's not there. And you could be looking at what is happening as if it were science fiction, kind of like almost you're mm-hmm. writing something that has couldn't have happened and you're not just sort of rewriting themistocles in the sp- in space but you're but you're mm-hmm. actually reorienting the relationship of people to each other and to the state and that's anti-historicism i guess yeah maybe I, um i'm still not a hundred percent i'm getting it but like i mean I, you talked about science fiction i mean typically like you know the way that you you write science fiction is is in fact by by extrapolating from from stuff that uh, exists somewhere within the present, right? So so in other words, like you know, if you're talking about extrapolating what happens in the future, not from what's happened in the past, but from now, okay, fine. But I mean, that's the you know that that still seems to me that there's still a picture there where like the seeds of what happened in the future what's what's going to happen in the future are already in what's happened right now so so I, actually I, let me I'm not sure if this is productive or not but I mean like one way um I think you know because I think that you you might be combining a couple of different issues you know when you're you're talking about you know, Hume and basically sounds like the the problem of induction. Um, and it's just more like the idea that if we were all turned into uh, toads and and put on a, in a desert island and then we had to live there, we would still be talking about like uh, the, the capital relations that happened in 1500. It's like, how is it still relevant? You know, that's an extreme example. But what uh, I'm you know, pushing towards is it's more like that than we think. Okay. So, so I think there may be at least two different issues here and I'm going to do, do my best with both of them. One of them is sort of why is thinking, I mean, just, just crudely, like why is thinking about stuff that happened a really long time ago relevant to, to, to thinking about, the president, what the possibilities are for the future. And then the other, you know, you started off the call by talking about um, Hegel and, um, and uh, you know, the sort of what you call the historicism in Hegel that you think was also present in Marx. So starting with the first one about the uh, historicism um, and 
sorry, I started with the first one about why it is that thinking about stuff that happened a long time ago is relevant for thinking about the present and the possibilities uh, for for the future. I mean, I think that certainly one, you know, one reason might be that um, even though the specific things that are going to happen now are different and, you know, there's no claim here that's like everything's cyclical or anything like that, that like, um, you know, there's this... Definitely the idea would be that, um, you know, that new stuff can happen, but, you know, you can think like, okay, you're talking about, you know, you, you said something about economic relations in, in 1500. And so thinking about how one society, one form of, you know, mode of production could emerge from another could be relevant for thinking about the ways that capital, you know, that like something new could emerge now, right? Like how, um, you know, like this, this sort of question that we ended with last time about the relationship between the development of the forces of production, what the productive capacity of a society is, and then what the relations of production are or even could be, could tell you something really important because not because you think that like what happens now is going to be the same thing that happened in 1500, but because uh, thinking about how it was that capitalism could emerge from feudalism might tell you something about how it is that something new could emerge from from capitalism. That like you could say, well, uh, it's the sort of development of the forces of production that makes the new thing possible. If that's true, then like that's again go back to where we kind of ended last time about why socialism and scarcity don't mix. You know, that could be like super relevant that like the same way that you could only get capitalism um, with this sort of given that you had a certain level of development of the of uh, of the forces of production, if that's true. Right. You know, that that could be a sort of hint about like how, you know, when you could get socialism. So so that's one thing. But then the other thing is on the second point about Hegel and historicism and all that stuff. Something that Cohen would say, does say, uh, not early Cohen, not the Cohen who's writing Karl Marx's theory of history in the 70s uh, and is doing so as in many ways a very orthodox Marxist at that point. Um, you know, he's trying to apply a certain kind of analytical methodology to unpacking what Marx is saying and arguing for it. But he is trying to, you know, just straightforwardly defend all of his claims that Marx is making in that 1859 preface. Um, but like late Cohen, when he has second thoughts about all sorts of things, uh, one of the points he makes, I think probably in a couple of places, but one of them is in his Gifford lectures, which were anthologized in a book called, uh, if you're an egalitarian, how come you're so rich? Which, you know, I always say is a, I'd really like to get to the point in life where that question is a good way to own me. But, um, in any case that, that, um, that what he he says in there is well there is something that's kind of bad about this this sort of Hegelian historicism because this assumption that like the solution to problems that come up in the future will sort of already be contained in the current level of development that they that like the and he quotes like Fichte and all these people like applying this even to stuff like how do they think about math problems and whatever and they're analogizing this to history 
Uh, and like he quotes Rosa Luxemburg in her pamphlet of the Russian Revolution saying that, you know, history never presents you with a challenge that it hasn't presented you with a solution for. It's like, well, hold on. Why should we assume that? Right. Um, and, and one way of maybe sharpening the point, um, that sort of late Cohen is worried about there is to think about like, okay, is it really true that the future is contained within the present in such a way that like, that there's only one sort of possible future that's that the present is like Cohen in in that late stuff talks about, um, he uses this phrase, the obstetric metaphor, always worried of mispronouncing that word, but like, like as in like pregnancy. So there's this classical Marxist metaphor that like the, the new, the old world is already pregnant with the new. So all we have to do is, is to kind of facilitate, you know, the childbirth, make sure that it's not stillborn. So it's not like a hundred percent deterministic, but it's pretty deterministic because the only possibilities are that you go forward along the one line of history or else, you know, the new world is stillborn and somehow you collapse back to some earlier stage. This is what Marx says in the Communist Manifesto that the uh, that you either have the victory of the um, a new ruling class remaking society in its own image, or you have uh, the common ruin of the contending classes, and that so and that this this could be you know to to like really like hone in on what Lake Cohen is worried about here you could legitimately say, yeah, you want to be careful about that because is that really true that the only possibilities are going forward along this one line of, of, of historical development or else some sort of collapse? Like this is what people, this is the kind of thing people are saying when they say the options are like socialism or barbarism, which is a very convenient phrase because it's so vague that anything bad that happens when we don't get socialism could just be, you know, could just be, uh, um, put into the barbarism, you know, uh, category, like see World War II, barbarism, you know, whatever, environmental destruction, barbarism. But like the sort of original idea when Luxembourg, and I think uh, actually Kautsky before her used that phrase, socialism or barbarism, is like either you're going to develop from capitalism to socialism or you're just going to, you know, have some sort of common ruin of the contending classes that it's, you know, on towards Star Trek communism. So Cohen, Cohen's saying that's a false dichotomy that is not yeah. just as simple as excellent. Right. So it sounds like I agree with him there. And yeah. I don't want to, like, I'm in no way against the study of history as maybe one of the more important and overlooked things right now. But I just want to leave room for that there are certain things that can only be, like, maybe the now is pregnant with, with the future. But that doesn't mean that that uh, some things are only seen in hindsight, you know, and I, in, in 1555 or whatever was the first time there was this big shareholder company that sent its yeah. wealth on expedition, right? Now, not the wealthy people themselves. They hired poor people to go risk their lives trying to ship wool to Russia or whatever, whatever it was. But what if the now is there's a paradigm shift, I think, and then now is less about the surplus value of my labor being sent to Russia in the form of wool, and more oh. about Black BlackRock buying up all the housing and re like how 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 feudalism comes out of capitalism again. Uh, reborn is not in history; it's a now thing, and you can't just look at history, although it is helpful and you should do it. You got to leave room for that sort of 
a new thing that no one could have imagined 10, 15 years ago, you know? I mean, I'm sure somebody did. But yeah, maybe. So, so this is the kind of thing like Giannis Varoufakis talks about. And for that matter... Um, yeah, I'm a huge Varoufakian. Okay, yeah. So for that matter, like um, uh, Daniel DeLand, who's an American Marxist who nobody really reads anymore, which is a shame because he's an interesting writer. But um, he, was, he was like a... Uh, uh, he was... Um, you know, he was like a factional enemy of all the socialists you have heard of from the early 20th century. Uh, but uh, he uh, was the founder of the Socialist Labor Party, and there are places where his version of socialism or barbarism uh, is, well, he says, well, if we don't progress towards socialism, we're going to have this, he, he says, industrial feudalism. And it's always been really unclear to me exactly what he means by industrial feudalism, but maybe it's the same sort of thought as the Varoufakis stuff. Uh, I don't know that I'm I'm sold on that, that the, that the sort of economic structure of this kind of like, um, you know, late stage capitalism with all this importance of kind of uh, intellectual property rents and all that stuff is a fundamental departure from earlier forms of capitalism. But it's an interesting question. And, and I guess I, I will just sort of maybe wrap up by just saying like, you know, so so there might be at least two reasons why two good reasons to worry about thinking that like there's only one line of, of possible future progress that either you progress to that future or you collapse back to something earlier. One of them is the one I guess you're getting at and Varoufakis is getting at that. Like maybe there's a, another bad possibility. Like this is what, um, you know, this is what like, I don't know, like James Burnham thought, you know, with the, um, the managerial revolution that the, there was this, like new kind of class system that was really different from capitalism that was emerging uh, even in the mid 20th century uh, where really like both in the allegedly socialist East and the allegedly capitalist West, you know, bureaucrats were really going to be in charge now. And then I guess the Varoufakis delayed stuff is like a different version of that. So that's one, but then the other might be just this, and this, this goes right into my interest, which is to say, look, it's not necessarily the case that there's only one uh, good. Uh, there's only one thing that could come legitimately after capitalism. Like you could take that as the lesson of the socialist experiments of the 20th century. That actually it could be there are these like real problems with how to build a new society, both maybe values problems, what we want it to look like, and also uh, logistical problems, like engineering problems, how it can look like if it's going to, if it's going to be efficient and, and, and viable and survive over time. Um, and it turned out that those were really hard problems that like some of the, like, the, you know, the, like part of the problem with the Soviet Union, maybe even separate from the political authoritarianism is they just never figured out how to, to do sort of really effective economic planning to coordinate production with consumer needs and all that stuff. And they always think about in this connection, I always think about something uh, that my friend Bhaskar Sankara Jacobin said uh, when I was on the Michael Brooks show with him a few years ago, where he, he talked about like uh, Trotskyist writers like Raya Dunevskaya, who will bring up in this way where they clearly think it's really cool and really profound that when Lenin was, was like just before the revolution, I don't know, while he was in exile or maybe while he was in the train, uh, you know, to the Finland station, was, was rereading uh, Hegel's logic. And um, 
And I remember Bhaskar's line was like, yeah, he shouldn't have done that, right? That was a bad use of his time. He should have been reading some like economics or military theory, or, you know, or, or some, you know, military strategy or, you know, economic theory or something that was actually going to be helpful in figuring out how to construct a sort of viable. Or, or, or writing instead of reading. Yeah. Like, yeah, just like, a, like, I agree with everything you're saying, but I just like, well, human beings are more than any other mammal, like less defined by their past. We have the imagination, we have the invention, we have ways in which we can sort of alter our possible futures. And I'm not even asking anybody to sit here and invent a new future, but to not have the wit to see something brand new and wondrous when it's right in front of your face is because you can't frame it in the context of your history book is dangerous. That, I guess that's all I'm saying. Yeah. No, I, I, I get the I get the line of thought there. All right. I want to um, – I do want to go to Schnarf. Um, uh, first, I did just want to weigh in on a conversation that uh, – well, I guess Schnarf and also uh, Socialist Pizza. I love everybody's names in here. And, uh, and Silver Harlow were having in the chat about uh, – Marx has used the phrase primitive communism and – uh, and I think that the – I wouldn't overthink that. Um, like I think in many ways is actually pretty positive about these societies. Uh, but the, the, the word primitive there, I think you can really even just swap out like undeveloped. That like uh, – in other words, the thing that's primitive about primitive communism is the level of development of the forces of production that you don't have the capacity to create material abundance yet. So it's like, it's, it's, um, you know, communism plus, you know, um, not having, you know, not having much to, to go around, not having, you know, certainly not having anything like modern industry. So as opposed to the sort of modern industrial abundant communism that he thinks he can have now, right? Remember, he's not just talking about like uh, indigenous people in the Americas. He's also talking about like, you know, European several thousand years ago and all that stuff. So that would be my, uh, that would be my take on that from what I saw about the discussion in the chat, but Schnarf, uh, let's, let's wrap up with Schnarf for today. What's on your mind? So I, I have a general question, but before I do that, there is a section where Marx makes a specific remark about the exploitation of the indigenous in the Americas. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that quote is, but I know Marco, which is socialist pizza. I don't know why he's not a socialist taco or a socialist hamburger or a socialist uh, hot dog, but he chose socialist pizza. So I, I will send that to him. He's not even in, in there anymore. But what I was actually interested in is this. Is, first of all, I've never read Cohen to begin with. Like that, That's going to go in my pile of books that I got to get through. Right now I'm reading Isaiah Berlin's Karl Marx which makes oh, me yeah. want to stab myself in the, in the, in the throat. Well, I, I just, I do just want to interrupt you here just to say that uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, which book this is in, although I think I can find it pretty easily or no, I think I do. I think it's in finding yourself and the other maybe, but anyway, I can, I can look it up for you to make sure. But, uh, but I actually just recently read uh, in one of Cohen's collections of essays. He has a, he has an essay about Isaiah Berlin and Marx and the arguments that he used to have with Isaiah Berlin and Marx. So I think you might really enjoy that. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, Isaiah Berlin is very interesting in his own right. I think he has a criticism of Marx and I think he has positives of Marx. And I think it's, I think it's a, it's more along lines of what I want to do as opposed to just reading like, you know, Lenin, Trotsky and then just kind of moving that direction. So, but my point here is not, and is not, is not to talk about that. What I was, what I was interested in is this term technological determinism and to be honest with you, like I, I read it, it registers, and then it, it doesn't sink in. So essentially what technological determinism says is that humanity's created uh, product, right? The created commodity is now determining the history of people. Is that what technological determinism essentially means? Because I, I'm having a hard time seeing why it's such a controversial topic, especially in light of the fact that, you know, the, the fourth industrial revolution and all the things that it entails pretty much means that our products and our commodities are taking a front seat in determining where we end up. I mean, even if you think about it, like we're fighting wars over commodities, actual raw materials, we're going out of our way to, to to deal with material things more so in in a in a bigger way than than things that are just stuck within the the segment of our human experience. So that's what I'm really interested in understanding because I, I, I might be stupid. I just don't get it. Like I don't I don't understand why this is such a controversial topic. Yeah. So when people when people describe and, and importantly, this is not how Keller would describe his reading of Marx, um, but what other people describe that reading of Marx as technological determinism, what they're really talking about is how it conceives of the relationship between the forces of production and the relations of production. In other words, between you know the forces of production, just the capacity of a society to produce stuff, um, the the ways that we can extract from nature uh, the the stuff that we need. Uh, and the relations of production, which are just how society is economically organized, you know, whether you have lords and peasants or um, slaves and slave owners or capitalists and workers or, you know, uh, what Marx would call the society of associated producers in a future, in a socialist future. Um, so that's, so the claim that people are, the thing that people are objecting to when they use this, this phrase technological determinism is the idea that the development of the forces of production is what then leads to certain relations of production uh, being the way they are. And I guess the reasons people would, I would object to it, um, I'm not really one of them. I think it depends a little bit what you mean. But I guess the reason people would object to it is they think that that's too simplistic um, or it just leaves out. Um, well, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah, okay, yeah. So it might, have, yeah. it might have been too simplistic in the in the 1920s and the 1930s, but it's not so simplistic now. And and just to put it in perspective, like I, I'm I'm a person who's immersed in technology. Right. Uh, and, and I can and I can see how the how potentially the the tail wags the dog and i see the relationship between and and i i think i think i got this from heidegger more than i got this from marx was the relationship Mm -hmm. between people and technology as a whole being something uh, a lot more than just a commodity or 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 thing It, it now becomes essentially the the driving force in everything 
And I don't think that's such a asinine or backwards or, or, uh, or simplistic way of looking at it because technology has the ability to drive us off the cliff as much as it has the ability to save lives, right? There's a positive and negative. Again, the, the, the dialectical comes out here, right? You, you can, you could say like, you know, if we have a new type of medicine that it can save lives, but then it becomes a commodity and then it's used against people to, you know, so, so that they can extract wealth from people. It has, it's like a double-edged sword. What I'm thinking is, why why was this ever such a controversial thing? Because I've heard people condemn technological determinism as, yeah. as, as something. Yeah. Uh, I mean again, I, I, I think I think maybe I think maybe the idea that you know, when they say like that the level of development of the forces of production is sort of causing leading to generating determining these are not necessarily all synonyms but you know something like that uh the how the forces of production are uh then that could you know again i i think the claim would be that like um it's it leaves too much out or you know there are these other things that you need to factor in it's too simplistic whatever or it, it's just or maybe it's just maybe people just don't think it's accurate, right? So, so I, I mentioned okay. last time in part one, um, the uh, the Brenner debate, which is this um, debate among Marxist historians about how it was that capitalism sort of first emerges from uh, from feudalism, and you know Brenner's claim is that in really in, in a weird, in a way it's sort of a weird fluke that happens after the bubonic plague. Uh, and the disruption that that caused. What do you think? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, this is a. Uh, I think that there's probably some truth to to Brenner's claim there, but I also think, like, I, I I'm also not sure that that's inconsistent with what's sometimes called technological determinism. In other words, it could be that because so so here's like here's why I'm not sure it's inconsistent because I think there are two different questions maybe two different levels of analysis. One is how is it that like a new system emerges in the sense of like how it like kind of maybe first gets its foot in the door. Um, 60% of Europe dies. There's a requirement for skilled labor. There's consolidation within the cities. The bourgeois are born out of the skilled labor. Sure. that, That was... That's been my consensus. Maybe I'm wrong about no, that. But sure, I- sure. That that could be true, right? But but again, that's one question is like how a new mode of production gets sort of gets going in the first place. And then a, a different question is how is it that that mode of production becomes like dominant over the entire world, right? And, and, then, it- and then so so the question that I have here is this is that Marx's position is not ever so clear in in that there there you know he he I, I think the the way you brought up the water wheel I think when he's saying that, I think he is pointing to a to a form of technological determinism. But there's other things that he says that 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 might negate that in a way. But I think it's it's a little bit, bit of both. I think we can't discount the role of technology as a whole in in the apparatus of 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 any system, including well, capitalism. Well, let, let me just you know just to quickly complete the thought. I mean, I think that it. I think that the way I've defended something like a big picture 
quote-unquote technological determinism here um, in light of the Brenner debate is say, okay, look, it could be that this specific set of historical circumstances around the Black Plague and the way that played out in England specifically could be why it is that you get your sort of first island of capitalism in the world, uh, why it is that the system starts, but then like, look, you can have a new system and it just doesn't go anywhere. Like there's no, you know, why is it that like, you know, sure, this is why you, you get your sort of first capitalist relations going. Uh, but why is it not that you have the sort of birth of a small capitalist class somewhere, but why is it that that capitalist class becomes the global ruling class? Why is it that the capitalist mode of production becomes the way that the entire world is organized over the next uh, several centuries after that? And it, and it could be that the answer to that second, maybe more important question, because like you could get all kinds of historical experiments that arise at one point and just don't go anywhere. I mean, you can say like the Soviet Union was a might have represented, depending on how you think about what happened there, like a new mode of production that arose and then it collapsed. Right? It it didn't. Uh, it certainly didn't become the dominant one in the whole world. And the reason. You can still say the reason that capitalism became the dominant mode of production in the entire world, it, you know, and this this goes with the evolution metaphors too, because like, you know, you just have some sort of quirk of a weird mutation that like, you know, causes some new feature to arise. Wait, is it a then, mutation? Is it well, a mutation, or is it is it is it the is it the commodities that 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 really actually drive it? Because if you think about it, right, like in the eighties, you have you have this whole new set of of financials that that take over the the real you know sense of of value within the economy and the soviet union had no way of actually plugging into that so it was in their interest to basically run the ship into the rocks and then take on the neoliberal features of the modern day russian federation yeah i mean i think that like again i think you could just say the reason like what the initial mutation in this metaphor is, like what the sort of set of local contingent circumstances that gives rise to the sort of first island of capitalism is, is, is one question, but then why does that become globally dominant is a different question in the same way that, okay, the mutation is one thing, but then why is it that that becomes the sort of, um, you know, that, that becomes the, you know, the mutation that survives and, you know, and, and, and takes over that whole genetic line uh, because it has these evolutionary advantages. And similarly, you could say that the, you know, whatever it was that sort of uh, gave rise to the first bits of capitalism, the, the reason why capitalism sort of globally triumphs over feudalism is that it's so much better at developing the forces of production uh, than, than feudalism was, because uh, feudalism does fetter the development of the forces of production in so many ways. Like, it, it is so clunky. <laughs> And it doesn't lead to those forces being developed in the way that it is under capitalism. So that's the sort of way that I think you could have um, a uh, um, that you could have a uh, that you could you could sort of you could maybe reconcile the Brenner story, which says sure that could be true, but you could reconcile that with a kind of higher order. Uh, version of technological determinism, or I don't love that phrase. I would just say a higher order version of the claim that there's a sense in which the forces of production have a kind of explanatory priority over the, um, over the, uh, the, uh, 
the relations of production. I will also note Steve Paxton uh, says in the chat, there's also a difference between uh, the broad circumstances that make a certain path possible, the specific things that actually happened. Brandon describes the latter, but doesn't rule out Cohen's approach to the former. Yeah, I think that's broadly along the same but, lines. But you know what's consistent between between slavery, uh, feudalism, uh, the, the ancient world, and capitalism as a whole is the commodity. So what I, what I'm what I'm curious about is this because Marx doesn't really develop material fetishism deeply. Like he has all these wonderful adjectives that he uses to describe it, but there's no real description of material fetishism, right? And and to me, I think material fetishism is intrinsically the the, the basis of of hu- humanity like i i think that we really are we have the the huge this huge love affair with things and it's deeply deeply ingrained in all cultures because there's always a relationship to material things so this commodity technology and then our material fetishism how big do you think that is in, in as a as a as a driving force in in human existence, regardless of capitalism, socialism, feudalism, or or you know any kind well, of you're, well, you're certainly right that commodities existed in previous modes of production, um, you know before before capitalism. And I don't think Marx would deny that. I think his claim is that it. Um, no, I think he the, would really would love that. I think I think he he emphasizes on the commodity, but then what he does is because he's he's attempting to create a logis, a logical critique so that so that workers can take that and then use that as ammunition to negate whatever's thrown at them. But he doesn't emphasize on it as as much as you know. I think he would if he was alive right now and talking about it. Yeah, I, well, again, I think his claim about commodities and capitalism is not that commodities, um, you know, like not that commodity production, right, producing things to sell uh, doesn't exist in previous uh, forms of society because he's very clear that it does. It's that it, it only becomes the sort of all-consuming dominant thing in society under capitalism, that this is the, you know, one of the big things in capital is that the define you know that like like even a subsistence farmer might um, like who mostly just you know grows the stuff that he himself eats and whatever and so he's, he's not like plugged in to a commodity production economy in the same way as far as most of his subsistence um, might still grow a little bit more than he personally needs and might still sell the uh, the excess. And in order to buy stuff that he can't personally grow, but then Marx would say that the what's going on there is uh, CMC, right? Commodity, money, commodity. So that the uh, uh, ultimately um, the ultimately the sort of purpose of selling your commodities is you can buy another commodity. Whereas I would say the defining circuit of capital is MCM, money, commodity, money. That the uh, that what you're, you know, what you're doing under capitalism is is you know as a capitalist, right? What a capitalist is doing is they're buying commodities, whether just like consumer goods in the case of merchant capital where you're reselling them, or uh, in the case of industrial capital like uh, capital goods where you know like like factories. Um, that you're you're buying commodities in order to 
sell them in order to make more money. Uh, so this is why Marx says that the, you know, the capitalist is like a rational miser. The miser is like a capitalist gone mad because in both cases, ultimately the goal is to sort of accumulate more and more, uh, more and more money that way. Um, okay. A lot of other interesting threads of what do you um, think about Baudrillard? Of what you, uh, of what just you, curious, uh, what you're, you're sort of raised. I'm, I'm curious and, as to what um, your takes are on him. Cause I, I, I feel like, I feel like there's certain there's a certain level of what he talks about in relation to consumerism and and his I, like I hear Marx in in what he writes but not as clearly as probably anyone else maybe I'm I'm looking for it in there but I see the relationship between what he's talking about in terms of hyper uh, hyper reality and and the overwhelming drive of advertisement and and sign value and those kinds of things. I think I think there's a there's a lot of marks in Baudrillard for for uh, lack of a better way of putting it. But what do you think of him? Yeah, I mean, I am certainly nothing like an expert, uh, and it's you know, I mean, certainly stylistically, it's it's not really my kind of philosophy. But uh, that would be, I think, uh, that would be an interesting discussion to have sometime. Maybe bring on a guest who could say more about him than uh, that I really can, and engage with them about that. But we're gonna, have, I think, we're gonna have to put a pin in that uh, for mm. today. Cause the, uh, the discussion has been, um, the discussion has been so interested, uh, that we, uh, that we ended up having it for, uh, a little bit longer than I was, uh, that I was planning to, uh, I was planning to, to do, um, to go today. So, uh, I will just note real quick from, uh, from the chat. Um, I 